0: Thanks for listening to the Calvary Tabernacle Young Adults Podcast. We pray that this lesson would be a blessing to you. The lesson. I was sick last weekend and missed. If you want to turn your Bibles to Colossians two we're going to do philosophy part two. And uh, the whole concept of philosophy is kind of part of the driving force, I would argue, of this particular series because our philosophy or our worldview is going to give us the lens by which we know how to live. It's going to give us a lens through which we understand who we are, who God is, and how to respond to culture and how to respond to society. You know, there's a, there's a little story I didn't plan on telling today, but I, I like to kind of bring it up sometimes to classes because it's a fascinating story. And there's, there's a book by the name of The, the Lost City of Z. And it talks about this explorer that went down into South America in, in, in order to try to find the lost city of Z, which we would dub as El Dorado. He wanted to find the gold. And uh, he ended up getting lost in that journey. And so many people have lost their lives trying to discover what exactly happened to this guy. But, but the story is fascinating because it, it combines various concepts from science and from uh, history and from exploration and um, even adventure in the current time period. And so it talks about the foundings of the Royal Geographic Society. Talks about a time in history where there were aspects and places on the map that still said there'd be dragons, which is kind of cool, I think. I wanted there to be dragons when I was a child. I wanted there to be a smog somewhere in a cave on his cache of gold. (laughs) And I was sorely disappointed to find out later in life that there were no living dinosaurs that we've discovered yet. I'm just joking. Um, But there were parts of the map that still said there be dragons. Uh, there was a lot that was unknown. There were not guides. I remember as a small child going on walks with my mom, and she would point out a maple tree, and I'd go, okay, cool, so that's a maple tree. So I can identify that tree. So what's that tree? And she'd say, I don't know, Jen. Let's go get a field book. And so we'd go get a field book, and the next day would go out and would identify all of the trees. Thank you. Would identify all of the trees and would would match them to the pictures in the book or the insects or the animals or whatever the case may be. But but in that time frame, they did not have any such benefits. Instead, they went down into a world that was unexplored that was full of potential pain, potential death that was filled with uh, danger around every corner. They did not know which animals would kill them, which insects were poisonous, which snakes were poisonous. They didn't have a map to guide them. They had absolutely nothing, okay. So just imagine this for a minute. Imagine going down from the Royal Geographic Society to explore a world unknown and not knowing what you were going to face, not even having a topographical map, basically having nothing. And so as part of the training for these young men that would be going down as explorers, they would have a multitude of classes that they would take with the Royal Geographic Society in England. And one of those classes was, was headed up by a man whose last name was Hearst. And this gentleman um, had a unique aspect and a unique style of teaching that he prided himself on. He argued that he could teach any young explorer to quickly ascertain the latitude and longitude of any position where their feet might take them. So if they were to be dropped in the middle of a place that was completely unknown, unmapped, uncharted, in the middle of the jungle in South America, using some specific instruments, they could quickly ascertain the latitude and longitude. I'm over here going, what is the purpose of knowing latitude and longitude if I'm still lost, right? Anybody else get lost easily? Y'all just aren't admitting it. Y'all are a rough crowd today or something. I get lost all the time, so I will admit it gladly. I get lost. I, I could almost get lost at Calvary, and I've gone here almost my entire life. No, not that bad. But you give me a I'm still lost. In fact, you tell me North... To go, to go north or go south, I'm still lost because I don't know which way north, south, and east, west is. I mean, I, I literally know that west is this way and east, north, south, but in terms of where I'm standing, I have absolutely no clue. It's not a talent, it does not help me. So knowing the latitude and longitude doesn't seem to be very beneficial, but the beauty of knowing the latitude and longitude when you're in a place that is unknown is simply this. If you know where you currently stand, you can figure out where the next place of safety is. Okay, so part of this worldview series, part of this question of how can you live it is the understanding that we do not know the things that we're going to encounter as we traverse through life. We don't know where our feet are going to take us, where the journey is going to take us. We don't know the dangers that may unfold. We don't know the temptations that may come against us, the trials that may unfold. And so without knowing, without having a map, how many have ever wished and just begged God, can I please just have a map? Can I know where the next open door is? One person. So you all just would rather be uh, blindfolded and led into a building you've never known and, like, fall down a whole entire flight of stairs or two or three? That's just not my cup of tea. I've fallen down a flight of stairs before at IBC, and it was not fun. Don't want to repeat that. (laughs) So so the beauty is that we don't know what is going to befall us in life. We don't know where life is going to take us. But I can tell you this, that no matter where life takes you, no matter what comes against you, no matter what trial you may encounter, or tribulation may, may unfold, or temptation may come, you may find yourself in a place, like we talked about in the song, where you don't know where you're going. You don't know which way to turn, but there are steadfast truths that are unmovable, and if you simply look towards those, then you're going to know exactly how to, to maintain the path that God has for you. So what does that mean? It means I may not know what the answer is, but I know if I move this direction, I'm not moving closer to the principles of Scripture. And I know if I take a step in this direction or if I stay still, that God is going to fight my battles. And I know I'm moving closer to a principle that is, is explored, that is unfolded in Scripture. So this is the part of the purpose of this series. So Colossians 2, verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, the word philosophy is only used once in the New Testament. It's actually a Greek word, as Brother Herbst pointed out, I think, last week. It means uh, love to love wisdom or to be a friend of wisdom. It's actually oftentimes uh, the word phila is translated in the New Testament as friend. So to be a friend of wisdom or to love wisdom. Uh, Philosophers is used once to talk about the Epicureans and the Stoics that are questioning Paul. Uh, before his powerful message regarding the unknown God that he preached on Mars Hill in Greece. And so this is not a common word that pops up in Scripture. So there are a lot of Christians that don't particularly like the word philosophy, specifically because of this verse. So let's talk about this verse for a moment, and let's break it down just a little bit. So beware, take heed, lest any man spoil you. Now when I think of spoiling, I think of a spoiled rotten child. I think about when you're, you really didn't deserve that toy as a little kid and your mom or dad still bought it for you and spoiled you. Maybe you were sick. Anybody else, when they were sick, somehow when you got home from school and you had been sick for the day, sick all day, or, um, you know, you went to the doctor and one parent went to pick up the prescription or whatever, and suddenly when they came back with the prescription, they also came back with, like, every food you have ever liked in the totality of your life, things that you haven't liked since you were four years old and you're 15 and all of a sudden you have it sitting there in front of you and you have every magazine you've ever wanted and a brand new book and brand new toys and all of this stuff. And it's like, okay, I just have a cold. <laughs> it's really okay. I'm not dying or anything. I promise. But this isn't what this, verse, this word means. It doesn't mean to spoil like we spoil child, child, but it literally comes from a word in the Greek that means to rob. So to take you captive, he's saying Take heed! Don't don't allow any man to, to take you captive, to captivate you by the things of this life, by the things that glitter, the things that are gold, the philosophies of this world. Uh, Brother Mooney oftentimes referred to the philosophy of the world as the spirit of the age. And he, anybody remember when he would talk about that? He oftentimes talked about the spirit of the age, which is the philosophy of the age that we live. So the wisdom of this world is not the same as the wisdom of God. Furthermore, he says, in vain deceit. What does this mean? It means empty, that which is empty of truth, that which is fully deceitful, the traditions of men, that which is given in teaching and preaching in writing. It's the substance of teaching, the substance of preaching, the substance of that which is written, whether it be... of God or of man. And in this case, we're talking about that which is of man. Furthermore, he says to beware of the rudiments of the world. And the rudiments of the world is simply this. It means the elements of this world. And when I think of rudiments or elements, I just think of pieces. But literally, this would be the starting point, the building blocks. So what is he saying? Do not allow your life to be built on the things of this world. Your foundation is going to be shakable. Your foundation is going to break. Your structure, as beautiful as you may build it, is going to, going to collapse under the weight of tribulation, under the weight of questions, under the weight of doubt, under the weight of the temptations of this life, if you build it upon the rudiments of this world. You know, the wise man, the foolish man, where they built their house. We remember the song from where we were a kid. This is basically what Paul is talking about here. So is he arguing then that, Philosophy is inherently evil. Anybody have, anybody say yes? Anybody say no? Everybody else just doesn't know. I just rhymed. Call me Dr. Seuss or something like that. Um, Lord Bowen, a British statesman and writer, said this. He said a philosopher is simply a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. A blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. That's pretty um, nihilistic. That doesn't <laughs> that's that that doesn't give a lot of hope. But that's because the philosophers that he's looking to are those that do not have their lives, their philosophy, their worldview built upon a system that is strong, that is secure, and that has been tested throughout the ages. So the questions when we read Lord Bowen's quote here are manifold. There's, There's a ton of them we could ask. Is philosophy evil? We've already said that. Philosophy is not evil. Can one's search for knowledge only end in darkness, despair, defeat, and hopelessness? And of course, our answer would be no, as Christians. We understand because we already have figured out some things in wisdom and some things in knowledge that that have allowed the light of truth to penetrate our, the darkness of our hearts and minds. Is the darkness of confusion inescapable? And, of course, our answer would have to be no one. Then, of course, what are we to search for in our pursuit of wisdom? And to answer the question fully as to whether or not God or Paul in this in this context is is, is getting rid of or saying that all philosophy is evil or all philosophy is wrong— All we have to do is look at the totality of Scripture to understand that God desires for his children to pursue wisdom. James chapter 1 says what? If you don't have wisdom, he says, just ask God, and he'll give it liberally to you. It's something that he's not going to hold back. And you see, wisdom is not linked to IQ. Wisdom is simply this. It's knowledge that is able to be rightly applied. Okay? you are a thousand times better off with a lower iq but a grasp of godly wisdom than you are with an iq that's off the charts but no godly wisdom there's no excuse for an ignorant christian absolutely no excuse for an ignorant christian and when i say an ignorant christian i'm not talking about iq i'm not talking about level of intelligence i'm talking about your ability to take the knowledge that is given to you in this world and apply it rightly to any given situation so just as i talked about at the beginning of this class with the guy in the Royal Geographic Society who taught them about the latitude and longitude. What is the goal? The goal is to have the knowledge of the Word of God, to have the knowledge of Scripture, to have the knowledge of who God is and how we're to relate to God so that wherever life finds us, we may not have the answer. I was just, I was just talking to Zara a minute ago and she was talking about her quiz today and I'm going to put her on the spot and she's like, I did really well and it was so easy. I was just decoding DNA. That's all I was doing. And then she went on to begin des- describing it to me and I'm just like, I have no clue what you're talking about. I have my things that are my wheelhouse, maybe if I had the textbook and could work with it, but just just having this quick conversation, I do not have a clue. I'm in uncharted waters, but here's the thing. In life, we never have to be in uncharted waters because we can have a philosophy that is steadfast, that is sure, that is unshakable, that is based upon that knowledge, which has been proven since the very dawn of time. Furthermore, the the book of Proverbs talks about wisdom, and you have a father who's talking to his children and instructing them and attending them to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Forsake ye not my law, he says. He goes on to talk about let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, meaning wisdom, and wisdom will preserve thee. Love wisdom, and she will keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy wisdom get understanding. Exalt her, and she, wisdom will promote thee. She will bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of thy life shall be many. I have taught thee in the way of wisdom. I have led thee in right paths. You see, Scripture from Genesis to Revelation extols wisdom and tells us that we should seek out, that we should search wisdom. You know, I've heard it said that ignorance is bliss. Let me just tell you, ignorance is never bliss. (laughs) You choose ignorance over wisdom, and you're always going to end up with your back against the wall. That's just what's going to happen. If you walk through life and never read this precious book you're going to find yourself in places you never wanted to be. If you walk through life and never seek the wisdom that comes from above in times of prayer, you're going to find yourself your feet taking you places that you never would have guessed. You're going to find yourself in positions that are unfortunate, but I tell you what, if you pray for the wisdom of God, if you seek understanding from his word, then he will guide your footsteps. And I'm way ahead of where I need to be, but go ahead and advance me forward, so hopefully I will mind and go with the slides. Um, So Philosophy examines, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Um, some of this you've already dealt with. Other parts of it we're going to deal with in the continuation of this series, but philosophy is going to examine metaphysics. Uh, I've got several different categories on the screen. This is kind of a limited view. But cosmological, so what is reality? How do we explain reality? How do we define reality? It's going to force us to take a look at whether or not God exists and the nature of God Philosophy forces us to look at what it means to be human, the limitations of free will, what biology means, what biochemistry means, what all of these things mean. Furthermore, it's going to cause us and challenge us to understand the very essence of being in existence. Epistemology, Brother Kilman already taught on, how do we know uh, what we claim to know, how do we define truth and knowledge, and then axiology, which is defining the value of things, and ethics. And a lot of these are kind of tied up together. We could argue, for instance, that um, determining whether or not we should embrace euthanasia forces us to define the value of a human life and ethical questions that, that are connected. So all of these are, are somewhat interconnected. But you do have to look at all of these things in order to get a full view of what, um, what is meant by the word philosophy. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Now, philosophy and theology intersect. They must. As I talked about in the last slide, one of the number one things that you have to examine in philosophy is metaphysics, which is going to take us down the path of is there a God? How do we know that there's a God? Who is that God? What does he desire for us? There has to be an interconnectivity between these two concepts. Our understanding of God is going to guide the totality of our existence, the conduct of our life, how we live, the decisions that we make. So our views of God are ultimately going to define who we are. So if we believe that we're created in the image of God, and I believe that you're created in the image of God, then I have to assign me value and I have to assign you value, correct? So the the, the fact of the matter is that when our philosophy and our theology intersect, we can have a livable worldview that is going to allow us to live victorious in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, our framework is going to fall apart if our theology is out of focus. Okay? So theology has to be the building block. So ultimately we have to go back and we say, okay, we have to say, okay, what is God's story? Who is God? What is God? How do we define God? And in order to define God, then we can then begin to define ourselves. Because if we're made in the image of God, we can't understand our value to the king of kings and lord of lords unless we first understand his infinite value. We cannot truly love one another as Christ desires for us to until we recognize God's story, which includes creation and redemption, which humanity has taken part of and has benefited from, and ultimately from God's story comes humanity's story, and then finally your individual story. You know, it's an interesting thing because um, in talking to students um, at IBC, it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of struggles in modern-day culture. Young people struggle with anxiety, Uh, People struggle with anxiety, they struggle with rejection, they struggle with the things of this life, and sometimes those things wear down on people, and, you know, it's not bad to pray and say, God, if you'll just allow me to see myself for a moment as you see me. Because sometimes when everything's being torn apart, and you're in the middle of a storm, or sometimes when, you know, a tragedy is hit, or sometimes when maybe you've just made a mistake in life it can be very difficult to find your value and your worth. And you can begin to think, I'm not worth a hell of beans. I can't find anything of value that that God would care about. I can't find any reason why he would give me his grace and his mercy and his love again. So what do you do? You go back to that story. You go back to that book of Genesis, that God who created those that he desired to be in covenant with him. You go back to that God who was manifest in the flesh in the New Testament, to seek and to save those that were lost, you and me. You know, the old song says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And the reality is that Jesus on the cross prayed not just for his disciples, but for all those that would come through the life of his disciples. So ultimately, when he was on the cross, we were on his minds. And so you have to go back to that place, and you have to go back and say, what is God's story? Why did God create us? And then you have to understand that God's story became the story of humanity and ultimately becomes your story, regardless of what you've had to be up against in life. One writer put it this way. He, he said that theology was the queen of the sciences and philosophy its handmaiden, because ultimately one what, what one believes about God determines the whole of that individual's human experience. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge uh, said... It has been said that when humans, beings stop believing in God, they believe in nothing. The truth is much worse. They believe in anything. The definition of humanity is up for redefinition if God is removed from the equation. So again, the only way that you're going to understand who you're meant to be and how you're to, 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 to respond to those around you is through knowing ultimately who God is. Francis Schaefer, the Christian apologist and philosopher, said this. He said that the, the words that make up the word God, G-O-D, are meaningless by themselves. They're just linguistic symbols. They're just characters on a page that have been used to define both the finite and the infinite. They've been used to, to define the God of Scripture and the foreign idol. Buddha and Jesus, Kali and Yahweh. So how do, we, how do we determine where to go from here? We have to have a right understanding of who God is. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, um, nonsense remains nonsense even when you speak it about God, which is kind of a fun way to say it. So what has to be our starting point? Our starting point has to be this. Revelation. Now, we're not talking about crazy revelation. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because some of you might actually raise your hands on this one and we wouldn't want to actually know. But we all know those people. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're just friends. Maybe they're just a distant somebody that you grew up seeing at church who always have a revelation. And their revelation is, um, how should we say it, not from Scripture? You know, uh, years and years and years ago at Calvary, when we used to do the Easter drama, there was a gentleman that came in. Um, You know, Easter drama was kind of like Easter at churches in the sense that you would see people that you had not seen the entire year, and they would show up for every practice for the Easter drama because they wanted to be part of the Easter drama, even if they had not darkened the doors of the church the rest of the year. So there would just be these random people. And so it was not unusual to see somebody that you weren't familiar with. And I remember a guy walking in, I saw him pass by me as a young person. I was like, hmm, interesting. Don't recognize him. No big deal. He's got on his Old Testament-looking garb, his big robe, and he's got a big staff in his hand like Brother Slava carried when he was John the Baptist, and uh, not thinking anything of it. And I promise you, all the lights... had gone off they started to come up again for the next scene you see this gentleman who's a tall man arise out of the center of the congregation arms race to the sky staff race and he starts prophesying if i can use that term very loosely gorbachev is the antichrist the end is near gorbachev is long dead and gone he wasn't the antichrist the end hasn't come the trumpet hasn't sounded um the revelation was not of god So when I'm talking about revelation, I'm not just talking about somebody's random revelation that comes from themselves. Okay, so what is the starting point? The starting point is is twofold, and this is a very simplistic way of putting it, and I recognize that. It's first general revelation. Can you show me where God is? Can you show me where God is not? Now, again, to quote C.S. Lewis, and I love this quote. I love C.S. Lewis. If you have not noticed, I tend to quote him a lot. He says, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. That's pretty cool, right? The world is crowded with him. No matter how hard you try to get away from the revelation that there is a God, that there is a creator, the truth is that all of nature testifies. It raises to a crescendo, announcing the presence of one who is a creator whose handiwork we see. And that's a beautiful thing. This is why Romans 1.20 says that, that sincerity isn't going to cut it. And a, a, and a lack of knowledge or understanding about who God is is not going to cut it when the trumpet sounds because Romans 1.20 says that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So what this means, it doesn't mean that God is in the stars and God is in the trees. That would be pantheism. But what it means is simply this, is that if we go out and stand on a mountainside and look out at the beautiful vista that's ahead of, of, in front of us, how many have ever stood there and you're just amazed by the creation of God? How many have ever watched the sun set on water and there's just something in your heart that cries out and desires to sing a praise to your God? Now, this is something that happens whether you're a Christian or not. There's a sense of awe and a sense of wonder that is, is inborn within every human being. This is why children are so full of questions. Why is the sky blue? Why can I smell the rain before it comes? Why is the grass green? Because they have a sense of wonder, a sense of awe. That's something that's put in us by the Creator so that we are without excuse. Now, I don't have time today But I could tell you a number of stories of people who did not know God, did not have access to a Bible, did not know the name of Jesus. And yet they stood somewhere in a foreign country on foreign soil and said, God, I feel like there's something beyond what I know. Something beyond the God of my village, the gods in the trees and the gods in the flowers and the gods in the leaves and the gods in the mountains. I feel like there's something beyond a God. If if you're truly there, just I want to know you. And you know what? There is no obstacle that will keep us from knowing God if we desire him because God will not remain hidden. So his nature, nature testifies to the reality of the creator. We see this time and again throughout scripture. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Dan today utter speech night and tonight showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth; their words to the end of the world. In them hath He set a tabernacle for the sun, which as is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it; and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. And we could, of course, spend time on the scientific evidence um, that is in Scripture as well, but we're not going to go there. Furthermore. General revelation is also the conscience. These are things that are available to each and every person. Scripture puts it this way in Romans two fourteen and 15. It says simply this, and I'm just going to paraphrase. I'm just going to kind of give you the gist of it. It says that the Gentiles sometimes, even though they don't have the law, do by nature those things that are required by the law. Why? Because their conscience is able to bear witness. This is why you can have an atheist who makes moral decisions. This is why if you give two little kids, sit two little toddlers in the ground, take two little twins, two little boys, two little girls, doesn't matter, give one some carrots, and give the other one a great big cupcake with chocolate icing that's this tall. And you're going to realize very quickly that they understand that an injustice has, has taken place it's inborn with us. We have an ability to analyze a situation from a very young age and determine whether or not it's fair, whether or not it's just. And from a very young age, we have a conscience that allows us to be guided towards truth and towards revelation if we allow it to. Uh, John 1, when it talks about the light that has come into the world, that word that was made flesh, what does it say? It says that that light which came is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. What does that mean? It means that within each and every person, that God who is now manifested in the flesh within the book of John has brought light, brought revelation, brought manifested truth, brought understanding that is available to each and every person. All you have to do is seek for him. And I promise you, even if you don't have a Bible in your grasp, you're on foreign soil somewhere, if you seek for the God of revelation, he will make himself available to you. Furthermore, the existence of the is indisputable. Anthropologically, sociologically, again, I don't have to, a lot of time to spend on this, but the Code of Hammurabi, for instance, predates the Egyptian exodus by over 300 years. Hammurabi lived about 1760 BC, and the monument that is attributed to him contains over 280 laws. Not only does it contain those laws, but it contains the, the punishments for breaching those laws, categorized by your position in society. So if you're just a meager servant or a slave, this is your punishment. If you're a a king or a rich man, this is your punishment for such and such a crime. Okay, again, we're talking about before the Exodus. We're talking about before Moses penned the Pentateuch. And yet from that very early time in human history, we have laws that are codified. Why? Because men and women were born with a conscience that was created by their creator in order to allow societies to function even in the most primitive of cultures in in the Brazilian rainforest and in in small places in South America and Africa before they had any other contact they had laws that guided the governance of their communities they had laws that governed and said if you steal someone's sheep if you kill someone this is the punishment why because we all know that it's wrong to kill Because we all know what's wrong to steal because we have a conscience that's created by God. So the general revelation is available to everyone. Let's go on to the next slide. Trying to hurry because I know we've got four minutes till eight. Special revelation. Now, um, we could go a lot of directions with both these things. I'm trying to keep it kind of brief. Of course, we could talk about special revelation being Moses seeing the burning bush and the revelation of the I Am to Moses who would walk before him. We could talk about the fourth man in the fire. We could talk about all the, the um, manifestations of God within the Old Testament that were visible to human eyes. Uh, but more than that, the two that are, are most significant to us standing here today is, one, we have special revelation that comes through God's revealed word, Genesis through Revelation. Psalms 19 even speaks to this and talks about in conjunction with the heavens declaring the majesty and the handiwork of God, it also talks about the law of the Lord being perfect, converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord, sure, making wise the simple. It talks about his statutes that lead us to his commandments that lead us to having a fear and a all for our creator. Furthermore, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, when I hear the word of inspiration, I think of having an inspired moment where a light bulb goes off in my head and I'm like, boom, you know, it usually happens about two, three o'clock in the morning for me because I'm a night owl. And uh, that's when the, the light bulb goes off. But that's not what is referred to as inspiration here. Inspiration is literally God breathed. It literally means that all Scripture is breathed by the Creator. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You see, when Paul wrote, when Moses wrote, when all of these people in Scripture wrote, they didn't just write in an inspired moment. It wasn't just a moment of instantaneous anointing, but they were functioning as the mouthpiece of God. Those words were breathed by the Holy Spirit, and when they were breathed by the Holy Spirit, they recorded them on the pages so that you and I would have a guidebook so that we could understand that no matter what we came up against in life, we would be able to determine the path that we should take because we have a God who has directed where our steps should take us. And it's his word that is going to allow us to be perfect. What does that mean? It doesn't mean without flaw. We can't be without flaw, but it means mature in him. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Second Peter 1, and 21 says, We all have also a more sure word of prophecy, wherein to ye do well that ye take heed, as unto light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God, Spake as they were moved by the holy ghost literally moved along in the greek by the holy ghost So they were in the vein of the anointing and the vein of the spirit Then beyond what we have in scripture, which is going to give us the principles to live by and the worldview that That is going to give us our lens by which we can live victoriously in him. We have of course the ultimate revelation That came Through the incarnation through god who became man you see, that light that lighteth every man that came into the world that brought the conscience and breathed into Adam the breath of life and gave him the ability to know between right and wrong is the same God who walked with Adam who then ended up robing himself in flesh to undo that which Adam had done. By one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin, Romans 5 tells us. But God came and robed himself in flesh as we see in John 1.14 when it says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Furthermore, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 talks about the fact that he is the express image of the invisible God. Only through Jesus Christ are we able to understand the totality of the character of the one who loved us enough to bleed and to die for us. You see, I don't care if you look at Colossians, I don't care if you look at Hebrews, I don't care if you look at Proverbs or Psalms or any of the other verses that I've thrown up here and thrown to you in the course of this this lesson, but The fact of the matter remains that all of it joins together in the revelation that came in the word of God and the revelation that came through the incarnation and the cross of Calvary. Romans 1, we talked about them being without excuse. Why? Because nature testifies, but nature alone is not enough without a further revelation. And God will always give that further revelation to those who ask. But just a few verses prior, what does Paul say in Romans 1.16? He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because he understood that, yes, we're without excuse because nature testifies. Yes, we're without excuse, as we saw in Romans chapter 2, because God gave us a conscience But beyond that, he also gave us his word to guide us, and he gave us the cross of Calvary and the incarnation that allowed us to recognize that we could have complete and total freedom in him. Because a revelation of a God who simply lives in the trees, a revelation of God who just sparks some excitement in your heart when you stand on a mountaintop is not a God that is worth praise, worth admiration. It's not a God that's going to lead you through the desert and lead you through the valley. That only comes through a God who loves you enough, not only to create you, but to live and to die for you. And let's go ahead and stand. I'm going to try to get to a close really quickly here, because I know we're technically out of time. Even in Colossians, if you look at the, the verses that surround that particular passage in Colossians 2.8, we find that he talks about the fact that we have redemption only through the blood of Calvary, through the forgiveness of sins. Verse 16, verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. How is he the firstborn of every creature? Because when God created Adam in the, in the Garden of Eden, he created in the, him in the image of the one that was to come in Jesus Christ. And so he is before all things, all things consist by him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Verse 16 tells us, by him were all things created, the things that are in heaven, the things that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And in him, all fullness dwelt, we see in Colossians 1:19. We have peace through the blood of the cross, we are reconciled through the work that he accomplished at Calvary. We were alienated and became enemies in our minds because of the wicked works that we had done, the times that we had denied our conscience, the times that we had seen God evident in his creation and we chose to close our eyes, but yet he loved us enough to choose to reconcile us. What does scripture say to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing our trespasses unto us, but allowing us to have reconciliation. He's the one when we cross over into Colossians 2 that have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it says in verse 7, right before we get to verse 8, and I know I'm skipping around just a little bit here. It says that we are to be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as he had been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So how do we avoid getting carried away? How do we avoid becoming a spoil of war? How do we, how do we... How do we avoid being taken in by that which is empty and worthless and is going to lead us to utter destruction? How do we avoid following after the traditions of men and and building our life upon the building blocks that are this world? How do we avoid building a structure that's beautiful to lay eyes on, but when the storm comes, it's going to be utterly destroyed? My friends, we have a path. We have a way. We have a way, and we're going to talk about it as we continue on through this series. We're going to talk about all of the ways that... This, the, our worldview is going to shape our successes as we walk for Christ. I'm not talking about sex, successes in terms of, of riches or successes in terms of, of secular victories. But I'm talking about successes that are going to allow us to one day stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords and to have him say, well done, a good and faithful servant. Because you know what? At the end of the day, that's all that matters. All that matters is that he says, enter in. All that matters is that he says, you're my child. All that matters is that he says, ultimately, well done. And so what are we going to do? We're going to make sure our understanding of who God is is correct. We're going to understand that that we view humanity as God desires for us to view humanity. We're going to make sure and certain that we're building our life upon the principles of Scripture, not after the traditions of man, as is said in that verse, but after Christ. Because Christ, in and of himself, gives us an entire worldview that is stable, that is established, that is immovable, that is going to allow us to become all that he desires for us to be. So how do we get there, friends? It's not just going to be through the lessons we're teaching. We're barely scratching the surface. Those that have came before me have done a fantastic job, and I have full confidence that everybody who follows me is going to do a fantastic job. But we can't get you there. We can teach you. We can explain. But you're gonna to have to determine in your heart and in your mind, you're gonna to have to seek for the wisdom that comes from above. You're gonna to have to determine that you're gonna spend time in this precious word and that when you wake up in the morning, you're gonna say, God, I need you one more time because I'm not smart enough on my own. My intellect isn't high enough. I'm not wise enough. I need your wisdom to guide me. I need your hand to direct me. I need you to shape me in your image. I need you to make me more like you. I think it would be right if we ended the service by just spending a few minutes talking to God and reaffirming that as we continue through the series, God, I I want to gain wisdom in this series. And I want to desire more than ever to be shaped by you because the things of this world are gonna pull, the things of this world are gonna try to divert your attention. They're gonna try to, 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 to capture you and to take you as a spoil of war, but there is a God who loved you enough to go to Calvary for you. And so let's just reaffirm. Let's just talk to him for a few minutes. Calvary Tabernacle Youth, let's just young young adults, sorry, let's just talk to him for a few minutes. Let's reaffirm our commitment to read his word, reaffirm our commitment to having a prayer life, to being disciplined. Because you know what? Not only do you need to make it to the finish line, but God has people he's gonna place in your path that he wants you to take by the hand and help lead to the promise line the the finish line as well. So that they can be partakers of the promise that comes through salvation. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Friends, you can't dismantle the worldviews of this world by intellect alone. It's going to take the hand of God. It's going to take the anointing of his Spirit. It's going to take... Some young adults that say, I'm going to get in this word. I'm going to seek the wisdom that comes from above because I know that those that I encounter are going to be so entrenched in the things of this world and they're not even going to realize till their back's against the wall how badly their system has held up. But you know what? I know if I'm guided by your wisdom, I can help lead and guide them to truth. I know I can make a difference in this world. I can be a light shining in darkness because I'm going to give myself to you and all that I endeavor to do. And I'm going to seek your wisdom.